All right. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. Uh, my name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President at the Aspen Institute and the Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. And I'm just thrilled to welcome you to today's event, uh, The Case for Good Jobs, How Great Companies Bring Dignity, Pay, and Meaning to Everybody's Work, a book talk a book, uh, with, uh, with my friend Zainab Tan. Um, and uh, this conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program Ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series in which we explore the changing landscape of economic opportunity in the U.S., the implications for individuals, families, and communities across the country, and ideas for change. Um, thanks to everybody for, for joining us today, both in person and virtually. Uh, if this is your first time uh, joining one of our events, you can find recordings of previous events um, in the series on our website at as.pn slash EOP events. And if you look at those events and you go all the way back to 2014, <laughs> you'll find one in which I'm talking to Zainab about her first book, The Good Jobs Strategies, How the Smartest Companies Invest in Employees to Lower Costs and Boost Profits. So I'm so honored and delighted to welcome Zainab back to talk about her new book. Um, and for those of you who don't know Zainab, uh, Dr. Tan, I'll call her Dr. Tan once, um, <laughs> is a professor of the practice in, the op in operations management group at MIT Sloan School of Management. She's also the co-founder and president of the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute, where she works with, I will get this, companies to improve their operations in a way that satisfies employees, customers, and investors alike. Uh, before joining MIT Sloan, Zainab spent several years on the faculty at Harvard Business School. She's received um, teaching awards at both institutions for excellence in teaching. Uh, and that's not really surprising because um, Zainab, and you'll hear, she has a real keen eye for pra practical details and, and a real understanding of the pressures of modern business. But she really brings that together with... Um, with this just foundational commitment to purpose and to human dignity and principles. Um, and so she really inspires her students to believe that they too can build uh, careers of meaning as they build careers in business. Um, and and uh, I know that because I've met uh, many of her students and they're great. Um, and I'm, they're Sarah. Uh, Sarah, who is also the head of the Good Jobs Institute and, um, and was one of Zainab's students, is a, is a shining example of um, Zainab's amazing students. But, um, but, uh, but I, and I also know how inspirational it is because uh, Zainab, you inspire me. Oh, um, you. So really, thank, thank you. you so much for being here today. Um, and it's great to have folks in the room. I love having folks in the room again. Um, but I know we have many more folks joining us online. So if you'll bear with me for a moment while I just give a little technical details. Um, so all of the online attendees are muted, um, but we welcome questions. Please use the Q&A box on your screen. And thank you to those of you who sub submitted questions in advance. We'll try to get to as many questions as we can today. Um, we also encourage folks to, to share their views. We know many folks in our audience are, are experts. So if you have um, ideas, resources, examples that you want to share, please use the chat function. Uh, we always appreciate your feedback. Please take a moment to respond to our quick feedback survey, which should pop up as you leave the session. You can also email feedback to us. That goes to for you guys in the room, too. Uh, uh, you can always send us your thoughts or music uh, choices. <laughs> at uh, eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Uh, we also encourage you to tweet about the conversation. Our hashtag is talk opportunity. If you have technical issues during the webinar, please, uh, you can put a note in the chat. Or again, the email is eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. The webinar is being recorded and will be shared via email, posted on our website. And closed captions are available for this discussion. Please use the CC button at the bottom of the screen. Um, okay, um, I also want to say that I'm super thrilled that this is a, a pre-launch for this uh, event. Your actual publication date is June 6th, is that right? So, uh, so we get to be first, yay. Um, uh, and, uh, but we do actually, even though it's not published until June 6th, we do have some copies here for sale. So if you're in the room, uh, you can pick up a copy and we'll do a little signing afterwards. And apparently, my colleagues tell me, we're also going to have a raffle. So a couple of you lucky folks may get a free copy. So, um, so stick around at the end of our, our session today. Um, OK. Um, so I'm done.
Great. Now, now great incentives oh. <laughs> for people to hang out afterward. Uh, now over to you. So, you know, a lot has happened in nine, nine-ish years since you wrote the original book, um, looking at the operational strategies. And you've expanded your lens to include a lot of different kinds of industries. Um, and, and, and you've started a nonprofit and you've worked with a bunch of, of different organizations, taught hundreds of students. And yet, you still need to write a book to make the case for good jobs. So, so maybe you know, just to to start us off, why did we want to write this particular book, and and why now? Thank you. First of all, Maureen, thank you so much for inviting me. I am so excited that Aspen Institute is the first place where I get to launch my book. Uh, in 2014, we did this together, and it was so much fun. And we get to do it again. And thank you all for, for, for being here. So in 2014, when I wrote The Good Job Strategy, I described two different approaches to profitability. And I was focusing on low-cost businesses, so companies that are providing the lowest prices to their customers. And there were two different approaches to profitably compete on low cost. One approach was to see workers as a cost to be minimized, uh, pay as little as possible, invest in them as little as possible, and then consequently operate with high turnover and all the problems that come with high turnover. Right? So operational problems, customer service problems, that, and that, that ended up reducing sales and profits for companies. Uh, but there are a bunch of companies that's the dominant approach. They operate that way. They've been profitable for years. But they live in this vicious cycle of high turnover and poor performance. Uh, so that was the dominant approach. But then I saw another approach that fewer companies took. And that was to see their employees as human beings. <laughs> real human beings who can drive profits, who can drive customer satisfaction, who can drive growth, and investing heavily in their employees, paying them a lot more than market wages, investing in more predictable, sustainable schedules and health benefits, etc. And these companies operated with low turnover, and they operated in a virtuous cycle of low turnover and good performance. But what I found in that original research was that it wasn't just investment in people that enabled them to achieve those outcomes. It was also specific operational choices. So, so that was the first book, and it was the what of the good job strategy. What, what are the principles? What are some of the operational practices that you need to, to use? After the book was published, I started getting uh, requests from leaders of companies, from you know, the largest employer in the United States to dog walking businesses, uh, smaller companies. And many leaders came and said, we are in that vicious cycle. And we feel trapped in that vicious cycle. And they wanted to get out of that trap. And they didn't know how. And at the time, I didn't know how to help them either. Luckily, uh, Sarah Kalk was my student. And with Sarah and, and Roger Martin, we started this nonprofit Good Jobs Institute. And during the last six, seven years, we learned how to make the case inside your organization, outside your organization, and how to adapt the good job strategy because it's a system and making system change is not easy. So I wrote this book to be able to share what we have learned and get those leaders who feel stuck to be unstuck or <laughs> trapped to be untrapped. Great, that's fantastic. Let's hope many of them are getting unstuck. Um, and so for folks who haven't read the first book, can you just do a quick Quick recap of sort of yep. what are some of the key operational choices that that you see are you know yep. integral to the good job strategy. Yeah, and I'll mention the companies that I studied for the first book, so you, you you'll get a sense by being customers. Uh, these were low cost businesses. Costco. How many of you know Costco? They've been you've been there. Trader Joe's. Uh, Quick Trip. Anyone who has been to Quick Trip? Uh, what 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 is it like? It's what is it wonderful though as a customer? Like what? Why is it wonderful? Oh, see, I have a limited amount of experience with this because my wife is from Milwaukee and she's a huge Quick Trip fan, and so I've become indoctrinated because of her. Okay. Uh, so, but the fact that I, I mean, any place that I believe is at least employee-owned is moving in the right direction versus it being only owned by. Great. You know, that's that's my main thing there. I mean, I wouldn't eat a lot of the things there myself. Uh, but, awesome. Yeah, but that's what I think. That's what I think Any customers of Quick Trip, like actual customers of Quick Trip here? 
Mark, what was what what is it from the customer experience? It's great that they're owned partly by their employees. Yeah, I asked this from the customer's perspective because I get the same answer no matter where I go. It's clean, it's stock, people are friendly, you get in and out, and this company prints money. I mean, they, 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 they are quite profitable. Um, Costco, similar, they win with their customers, they make a lot of money, and they offer good jobs. If you look at Quick Trips employee turnover, it's not 10%, 15% better than industry average. It's a quarter of industry average. Costco is similar, Trader Joe's is similar. So I looked at these companies, what is their secret? Like what do they do to be able to create these great outcomes for customers, employees, and investors? And I found that they all, in addition to investing in their people, had this operational design with four specific choices. And these choices made their employee investment worthwhile because they increased the productivity and contribution of their workers. Let me give you an example. If you go to a typical supermarket, you might see, go in front of the jam aisle, you might see 150 different types of jams. And their prices are probably changing all the time. There are little coupons that employees put in, right? So what do the employees of those stores do? They take so much time shelving those merchandise. They take so much time changing the price stickers all the time. If you go to Trader Joe's, maybe you'll see 10 types of jams. But, and the prices will be stable. What that means is that now the Trader Joe's employee can shell those much faster. Now that employee can know about the jam, so they can tell the customer about it. Now that employee is able to do their task more efficiently, and as a result of that, Trader Joe's can pay them more. So the operational choices like this, you know, simplification, empowering your workers, cross-training them, those are the types of choices that I see, that I saw among the companies um, that were able to create these outcomes. Yeah, great. Um, so I think that that, but I don't know if you wanted to say anything more about like, um, one, I just, it's always amazing to see how interesting she makes operations. I just have to say. <laughs> um, I mean, I tell my students, <laughs> operations is where spreadsheets meet humans and natural resources. Like I used to teach inventory management. Your inventory management decisions determine how we use natural resources. We make decisions, you know, we teach our students how to do scheduling, how to do staffing. Those decisions change the lives of people. So, so these are not numbers, they are human beings or natural resources that, of course operations is exciting. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, of course it is exciting. But I will, may I say one thing? So in 2014 when I came here and I was so excited about all these operational decisions and somebody in the audience in this book talk asked me, what role does leadership play in the good job strategy? And then I said, you know, it's all about operations. It's all about operational choices. And I apologize. I would like to give a different answer now. <laughs> because since that time, I've interacted with lots of business leaders, uh, some of the founders of these companies. And what I learned was that they have a very different value system and they have a very different mental model in their minds, it's not acceptable to operate with high turnover. In their minds, it's not acceptable that their employees are not making enough to put food on the table. So their mental models, and they, and they focus so much on their customers to be able to create value for their customers, and they realize if we don't have an empowered, motivated, capable workforce, we can't deliver to our customers. So, so leadership plays a huge role, and I take that answer back from, <laughs> from nine years ago. We'll go at it. Great. So, you know, so you talked in the beginning about sort of these these business leaders that are stuck, though, like in this in this bad um, system, right? And and trying to get them unstuck. But talk. But in your book, you sort of describe a little bit of what they're stuck with, right? You describe yeah. these sort of five corporate disabilities. Can you sort of say sort of what is the what is the disability, what are the dysfunctions that they're yes. kind of stuck with? So 
in my initial research, when I looked at the vicious cycle that companies were operating in, the costs that, that I considered, and my colleagues, this was a group effort, were you know, lost sales, lost productivity, um, higher product costs, et cetera, all the costs associated with pro-operational execution. But then once we started learning, working with companies and spending so much time inside them, we realized, and Sarah and I learned this together, that when you operate with high employee turnover, there are so many things as a business that you cannot do. There are so many good practices that you can't implement, you can't adopt in your, in your organization. And I call these corporate disabilities. So I'll give you an example. The first corporate disability that I talk about is you can't hire the right people and you can't train them well. So a background, if you operate with high turnover, there are all sorts of operational problems. The managers who are managing these units are constantly fighting fires. They are, they are in a retail store, they are checking out customers, they are shelving merchandise, they're trying to figure out, oh, who didn't show up today? I'm gonna, I'm gonna find out who can come in. So they're constantly firefighting and they have no time to hire the right person. And even if the company has great hiring practices on paper, they don't implement them. Sarah, when we started working together, um, one of the first things that Sarah did was to work as a frontline employee at a large company. And this was not an undercover operation. The CEO knew about it. Uh, Sarah spent nine, 10 weeks working at this retailer. And she had just graduated from MIT Sloan. She applied with her real resume. The hiring person never asked, like, why does somebody who just graduated <laughs> from MIT want to work Shelving merchandise. <laughs> and they never did reference check. You, did, you had a drug test and you were hired. Um, so, I mean, she's very capable. I'm not saying she's very capable. But, but that's the end. And once she, she, she got hired on the training, you know, she had 41 hours of training. 23 of those 41 hours were wasted because there were six hires, but only four computers. So, there wasn't enough computers for on the you know computer training for all the new hires. There were constantly glitches. The managers were not there to answer questions. She shadowed somebody um, in the checkout. The problem was Sarah was not going to work at the cash register, um, <laughs> and the person only speaks, spoke Spanish, and Sarah doesn't speak Spanish. So again, you can have great training on paper, but on the job training, but those don't get implemented if you have that type of instability. So what happens when you don't hire the right person, you don't train them well? Your employees are by design not very capable. Right? They, they don't know. Like it's not because of. You know, it's not because they're not, themselves are not capable, but they just don't know. So from the leader's perspective, now I'll get to the second corporate disability. If you see your workforce and you realize that they don't know much, do you want to empower them? Do you want them to make decisions for your customers or for your, do you want them to use their judgment? Of course not, right? So, so then corporate leaders start taking away more control, right? More decisions from, from, from the units and put more controls, more controls. And then of course, some of their decisions are bad decisions, um, like selling beach chairs in New England in September, right? Like <laughs> the weather is not that great in New England in, in September. So, so those decisions are not good decisions. Then the frontline employees lose trust in corporate. They say, you know, those corporate people, they ask us to do things, they have no idea. And, and then, they decide they're not gonna follow the rules because the rules don't make sense. And then when they don't follow the rules, the corporate people say, oh, those people, you know, we can't trust them even to perform simple tasks. So then there's that distrust loop that continues. So this is another corporate disability. I can go on, but these are the type of things, you know, we know empowerment is great for companies. We know hiring the right people and training them well is good for companies. But when you operate with high turnover, you just can't implement these good practices. Yeah, well, I just love how you sort of always frame this in sort of the human experience of this. And actually, just a little aside, my daughter was in a retail job over last summer. And, you know, again, she wasn't trained properly. And I remember you talking about this before, like people don't want to be standing in front of a customer not being able to serve them, right? Like she wasn't trained in how to take cash. And it's really embarrassing to say, like, I don't know how to let you pay for what you want to pay for. So 
you know, yeah. so so she doesn't go back there. And so to the turnover thing and the, you know, anyway. And, and the worst really thing about this is more what you said, she doesn't want to fail in front of the customer. Yeah. Most people, almost all people go to work to be able to do a good job, right? But But we have designed a system where, first of all, millions of workers are in a vicious cycle of poverty. Their pay is so low that they can't make ends meet. They can't meet their budgets. And as a result of that, they have all sorts of physical, you know, physical, mental, cognitive difficulties. And that means they can't perform well on the job, right? They, they, they make more mistakes. They can't focus on the job. They have more attendance problems. If you, if you have, you know, a little emergency, you can't take care of that emergency when, when, when you're, you're poor. So, so all of those things affect your performance on the job and you don't get promoted. So you end up in this vicious cycle of poverty. So what happens from the executive's point of view is they see workers and they say, you know what, that person, they can't do anything right. They, they, they can't even show up on time. They can't even do the most you know, basic thing right. And then they lose faith in the people. And not recognizing, so, so, so they, they lose faith in, in, in the human being. And that, I think, is a huge driver of why we have these jobs. Mercadona, one of the companies that I studied, they have a bunch of principles. The number one principle is everyone is reliable. So they design everything assuming that everyone is reliable. And then they make sure that everyone is reliable. So Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. What I love also about how you describe these things is that you think in systems, right? And you keep saying, like, and you say this several times in the book, like it's a it's a system, it's a good job system. It's not it's not just wages, it's not just schedules, it's not just cross-training, right? Like thinking in terms of investing and building systems for success. And so I was just um, wondering if you could you could talk about that and also talk about sort of some of the the do's and don'ts, you know, and I, I certainly see a, a raising wages, right? And I, I, see, I see similar parallels in the social sector as well in terms of needs for system thinking, both in terms of employment practices in the social sector, but also how the social mm -hmm. sector thinks about creating change. So anyway, that's sort of a complicated question. But really, if you could, if you could just lean in a little more on sort of like the, the systems aspect yeah. of this and sort of particularly, you know, there's a lot of conversation around wages, so particularly thinking about the do's and don'ts of, of wages and how that can't be just the singular focus. Yeah, so first of all, pay is extremely important to make the job a good job. If you can't get paid enough to have agency in your life, nothing else really matters, right? So, so, so pay is extremely important, but it's one component of the system. So when it comes to pay, when we work with companies that are stuck in this vicious cycle, we encourage them to raise pay as much as possible, as early as possible in their journey. And then we, because that's how you get out of the vicious cycle. That's how employees get out of their vicious cycle of poverty. And that's how, as an organization, you get out of the vicious cycle of mediocrity. And, and so, so pay is extremely important, but then pay alone is not going to drive great outcomes for workers they will, but not for companies immediately. It doesn't even drive turnover immediately. It takes some time. So, so, so what are some of the things on the workspace, on the four operational choices of the good job strategy that you can use to reduce the workload, to, to make pay work for you? And, and we encourage companies to find ways to reduce workload in a way that benefits their customers. Uh, so, so raise pay as early as possible, but don't think about pay in isolation make other changes so that the pay uh, pays off. And some of the do's and don'ts of uh, pay raises, I haven't yet seen a context where the pay increase was perfect. Like, no one complained. It was so easy to, to, to do it. I mean, there are also, we are humans. We care about fairness, right? We all care about fairness. And compression is a real issue. So I can guarantee that when you raise pay, you will make mistakes. Um, but the, 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 the big uh, recommendation is always explain the why and involve the people in making decisions. So, so those are some of the things uh, related to pay. But things outside pay and the system perspective is really important. For example, we know that one of the other issues for workers, especially in service industries like retail, is scheduling. 
workers tend to get their schedules one or two weeks in advance, and their schedules, their hours change all the time. So creating consistency, creating predictability, giving them enough hours is a very important thing for workers. But creating those schedules require the workload to be stable. And that is not possible if the deliveries into your store are coming in very unpredictable times and the times when there are so many customers in the store. So we, when we say systems, um, usually we'll do a workshop and we'll have everyone, Good Jobs Institute, we do two-day workshops with, with companies. Um, we will have people from logistics, from merchandising, from, from finance, from store operations all together and we say, okay, let's focus on deliveries. What does the logistics function care about? Oftentimes, logistics cares about minimizing their transportation costs, right? They work in their silos and they say, I want to minimize my transportation costs. So if the deliveries are unpredictable, if they vary all the time, so be it. The stores should just deal with it. But a system we will say, look, if we just focus on the transportation costs, our customers are not going to get the right merchandise because we might not have the right people to shelve them. Right? Think in terms of customers. Um, our workers will have unstable schedules. It means that the turnover is going to be so much higher so that we won't be able to serve our customers. Um, and this will have an effect on, on our business. So the system view is thinking about how does this affect the customer? How does this affect the worker and the work that they do? And how does it affect the financial performance? And, and, and considering all three of those. Yeah, that's great. And one of the things you just started to point to is sort of um, and you talk about this in the in the book, sort of this over-reliance on metrics, right? Like the transportation people are just like focused on their metric, right? And so I'm wondering, you know, um, uh, what you think about sort of um, this over-reliance on metrics and if you could talk about that a little bit more, but what do the metrics kind of miss? And and are there better metrics that, that people should be should be using and thinking about? Yeah, what is that? Not everything that counts is counted and not everything that's counted counts. Right? Um, and, and we teach our students to make decisions relying on numbers uh, increasingly at all the business schools, uh, mine included. And, and that could lead to some wrong decisions. And of course, there are good metrics and bad metrics. Uh, for example, you know, metrics related to employees, employee turnover, what percentage of your workforce is making a living, uh, what percentage of your employees are, managers are hired, uh, promoted from within. Those are great metrics on the employee side. On the customer side, there are metrics too. So you can use non-financial metrics. That would be better. But still, there's so much reliance on data and historical data in particular to make decisions that can be very dangerous. I'll give you one example. Uh, Sam's Club is one of the companies that, that adopted this uh, good job system. And there's a terrific interview with the chief product officer of uh, Sam's Club, Tim Simmons, in Harvard Business Review in this last edition. And Tim Simmons says, you know, previously, when we looked at what we were able to do with efficiencies, with different changes, we were able to move efficiency maybe one or two percentage. But during the last four years, we were able to increase efficiency by 20%. So all those decisions that you made to improve efficiency by 20%, you would not have made them if you looked at historical data, past data, because the past doesn't tell you what is possible. The past doesn't tell you what you can imagine. It just ha tells you what happened in the past. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite examples um, from the book was, uh, speaking of Sam's Club, was uh, talking about John Ferner explaining, like, I could look at this spreadsheet and I can, like, use this spreadsheet analysis to tell me my wages are just fine, or I can use it to tell me I need to double my wages, um, which was kind of, sounded kind of crazy to me. But I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about what did he do when he realized that? Like, yeah, I mean, one of the things that they did was, okay, for us, we want to win with our customers. To be able to win with our customers, we need employee turnover to be low. For our employee turnover to be low, we need to pay our people better. So first they had that logical conclusion. And, and then they say, okay, um, how do we become the employer of choice? Right? How, 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 let's not benchmark ourselves to other mediocre companies. Let's benchmark ourselves to the best 
and we want to be like the best. And that was uh, what they concluded. And you can look at spreadsheets, make very different conclusions. For example, you could be operating a senior living organization, and we work with uh, different senior living organizations, and this is where, you know, our parents, grandparents are cared for, most vulnerable population perhaps. And you could look at spreadsheets, and you could decide, looking at spreadsheets, that, hey, last time we raised staffing levels, it didn't improve our profitability. Right? So you could come to that conclusion looking at the numbers. But what you don't see is, what happened to mistakes? What happened to that resident who wanted to go to the bathroom, but for 45 minutes she couldn't because there was no one who could take her to the bathroom. And now she soiled herself and her dignity is crushed. It doesn't tell you all the caregivers who are already working multiple jobs and they're not shining in front of their residents that they care so much about. Mm -hmm. so, so these are the things that data don't tell us, metrics don't tell us, and, and if we rely too much on it, we can start cutting ethical corners. Yeah, yeah no, that's really great. I mean, it kind of reminds me a, a little bit, you know, like, like you just need to get closer to the work, yeah. Um, so one of the pressures I think that also comes up a lot is, you know, the role of investors. And, um, you know, certainly uh, CEOs and many other people are mindful of the views of Wall Street. Um, so what is your view of sort of the we would but Wall Street won't let us kind of <laughs> argument? And, and, and have you seen that sort of, have, have you seen Wall Street and investors actually mm -hmm. change over the past decade in terms of how they think about these things? Yeah, I think after spending some time with leaders like Jim Sinegal, the co-founder of Costco, um, my view is investors don't run companies. They invest in companies, but company leaders run companies. Right? They have agency. Um, at the same time, though, investors can influence what matters to them. So. Think about a company that recently went through a merger or they invested in technology and what the investor reaction might have been to those types of decisions. And then think about instances where a company says, I'm going to raise pay for my frontline workers and what the investor reaction is. That reaction is usually negative. Right? There's, a, there's a small period where the stock price, it's not, it's not long, uh, but there's a small period where your stock price declines right after you, you, you say, I'm going to raise pay or I'm going to, during COVID, I'm going to invest in safety of my employees and customers, right? So, so for business leaders, then you, you look at this and you say, what is legitimate in the eyes of in investors? Um, clearly, investing in people is not legitimate, but there are so many other things that are more legitimate, and some of those other things are much easier and faster to do. So then leaders tend to direct their energy and their effort into those things that are easier and faster. They have legitimacy, and these leaders, you know, they, I mean, they're under a ton of pressure. They have competition, they have, I mean, they're under constant pressure, so they take that easier out. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, I guess that's still the, the that is still the issue. <laughs> um, I appreciated your call to business leaders to really summon their courage again, like sort of back to the human qualities. And and but you also kind of note that they don't really need to be that courageous. There's um, you know there's a good case for for good jobs, and there's both a positive financial return, but also this sort of mm -hmm. positive ethical or moral return in some sense. Business leaders you know, not only are showing sort of proper stewardship for shareholders mm -hmm. by investing in people, but they'll also be often acting in a way that sort of feels better for them yeah. and is aligned with their, with their values. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, I feel like, especially in our social sector, we try to be very hard-headed and say, we're just going to talk about the ROI mm -hmm. and just going to um, focus on that. But how do you think about sort of making that kind of ethical case in conversations with business yeah. leaders? How does that come up? I think first, it's nice for us to remind ourselves that CEOs, the executives running these companies, they're humans too. 
and, and, and they care about similar issues. So when we run workshops with companies, we oftentimes have the company present an analysis of what percentage of their full-time employees are making a living wage. And there are all the executives in the room. And when those data are presented, there is usually silence in the room. And there is somebody says, I had no idea. But I've never been in a room where executives, CEOs, were proud of their employees not making a living wage. Right? They, they don't want that. They, they, they don't want that to happen. Um, now, in certain contexts where uh, companies' profit margins are very high and their low-wage employees represent a smaller portion of their overall costs, think about financial services, for example. Um, if you are faced with that scenario of finding that so many of your employees are not making it, even though you're paying market or above market, raising pay so that everyone can have a living wage is, is not that difficult. Right? It's, it's, you, can, you can completely use your ethical drive and, and, and change it. Now let's move to another scenario. Let's move to an organization, um, Mudbay. This is, this is a retail chain, pet stores, pet, pet products, um, products for dogs and cats. And they're owners, not for product. Um, but but they, when they started their good jobs journey, their profit margins were 2%. Their labor cost as a percentage of sales was nearly 15%. Now, if they raise pay, by 30%, they wipe out their profitability, right? So, so in that particular context, this is, this is seen, at least, as a riskier decision. And you have your competition. You are making these decisions under uncertainty. So, so of course, it's not that easy. And in those contexts, what we have found is companies that adopted this, this, this system was they made a competitive case. They cared about the ethics, but they said, you know what, we must do this because it's not only the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do. Right? In those contexts, the ethical case alone is, I think, harder to make. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. But I'm glad you raised Mud Bay because we, we <laughs> actually were out in Seattle in 2014, and it was not long after the city council had um, decided to start phasing in a minimum wage of $15 in, in Seattle. And Mud Bay, being out there, was going to have to find a pathway to, to 15. Um, they had several years to, to get there, but they were going to have to find their way. So, uh, you know, and I know you're not really a policy person, but, um, but, you know, how much can sort of, like, like, how do you think about what businesses can do on their mm -hmm. own? And how do we think about sort of maybe societal choices as reflected through policy like, what, what do you think about sort of that, that balance? Or... So I teach at a business school. Um, and, and that's my audience, right? And, and, and I have students like Sarah who then go out and who try to change the world. Um, at the same time, I don't think that businesses alone can solve our societal, big societal problems. While I believe that, I also believe that we can't solve some of our big societal problems without business leaders. And, um, and, and these leaders work in a context, in a system, and I wish that system was better. And within that system, though, they can make choices. And what we try to do is, within that system, how do you choose the good jobs approach. And, and, and when we went to Seattle, Maureen, the issue was $15 wage increase. Now we're talking about $17, right? So, so think about that pay raise, uh, the minimum wage raise. And think about different reactions that could come from the business community. So if your inclination is you're in that vicious cycle and you have the mindset of labor is just a cost to be minimized, then if you're in that world, and now the minimum wage is higher, some leaders might say, hey, I'm going to try to figure out what can I automate? How do I use fewer people? 
where else do I cut? Maybe I'll just have worse customer service. I'll use fewer people to get more work done. Right? That, will, that could be one approach. Um, I think that would be the wrong approach. The good approach will be more enlightened leaders will say, hey, I have to raise pay anyway. What if I raise pay and increase productivity and contribution of my people? Right, so that they can, as a human, use their talents, their abilities, their hearts, their heads, and their hands to, 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 to help us thrive in front of our customers and be productive. That will be the right approach. And, and I'm hoping that as the demographic changes and, and um, we will see more, more leaders uh, choosing that approach. Having said that, I, I'm all for policy that makes it easier for companies to choose good jobs. And, harder to choose bad jobs. Yeah, great. I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm coming to you guys. So, uh, so get ready. Um, I, I was struck in the book, you know, in a couple of places that people were sort of saying, well, this good job strategy, it's, it's obvious. And actually, you yourself in the epilogues say that, you know, in many ways, what you're, what you're talking about is, is old, it's just basically principles of good management, right? Um, so, so is the strategy kind of like a return to, to fundamentals? And is, is corporate America ready to sort of do that? Oh. Yeah, I, the, the, the fundamentals, uh, one of my favorite reactions to my first book was from the then CEO of Walmart USA, now the CEO of uh, New Zealand Air, Greg Foran. And he said, this is so blindingly obvious. And I will say no academic likes their work to be like seen as blindingly obvious. But, but it, I mean, what do I say? Focus on the customer. Design the work so people are productive, so that they can serve the customer well. These are like old school management practice. Hire the right people, train them. I mean, these are old school management pr principles. And they have been hijacked by focus on short-term financial decision making for decades. Right? I mean, I, in that epilogue, I describe uh, GE under Jack Walsh. And it was, you know, the focus was so much on deal making, mergers. You know, we fired the bottom 10%, and it was all on the numbers. And he almost made running the core business and doing well operationally uncool. Like, I told you how cool operations are. And now, like, um, so, so I hope now there will be more leaders going back to basics of let's create real value for our customers. And let's do it decently. Um, I'm hopeful. I don't know if that's where corporate America is going, but that's why I do what I do. So. <laughs> Great. That's fantastic. I do have more questions, but I'd love to take questions from folks here, too. So... Um, wonderful. Uh, so right here and then here. Yes, you. I, I'm oh, he's, he's going to bring you a mic. Sorry. I'm sorry. It was a longer walk than I thought, so I missed a few minutes of your oh, presentation. No worries. <clears throat> really important issues. My cousin was one of the founders of MIT, at MIT of artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I've come at this for a while now. Okay. So people are getting excited about AI and how it's applicable. Now, what does this mean in terms of enriching the core job for somebody? Customer service can be gratifying, <clears throat> but what about enhancing the actual content of the job beyond customer service? What ideas do you have there in terms of a future of someone who may enjoy retail, would like to move up, but doesn't want to be CEO, but sees a future? But what kind of future? Yeah, I mean, I, I will... Um so there are multiple parts, multiple different ways that one can answer the question. One of the things that I will start with is, you know, what does AI to do to work and what does AI do to jobs? And my answer there is, again, we have agency. AI doesn't determine what it's going to do to jobs or, or, or to, to work. It's up to us how we use it that will determine whether it's going to be used for empowering people or it's going to be used just for replacing people and, 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 and that. So, so, so one part of it that we have agency. Um, the other part of it is, and I will probably stick with the retail or, or, or frontline context, uh, but AI and technologies could be presenting wonderful opportunities 
to augment people and re-enable people to use their whole human talents. When I was at Mercadona, uh, one of the things that they, they told me was, we never want to ask a person to do what a machine can do. That type of, you know, that type of attitude is a wonderful attitude. Um, one company that has done a fantastic job during the last few years using AI and technologies to create better jobs for workers has been, again, Sam's Club. Um, Sam's Club, and I'll give you one example. If you went to there uh, to replace your tire for your car, it used to take maybe 25, 30 minutes for the frontline employee associate to look at different manuals and to figure out you know, what's your car and uh, what is the right tire that fits your car. Now, using technology, that takes four or five minutes. Now that frontline employee can be an advocate for the customer can really help solve customers' problems. And by the way, because the job is more productive, they can be paid a lot more. And, and they can be the next one to be promoted to become a manager, assistant manager, and then a manager. So, so I see these types of technological um, changes to be a great complement to humans and enable humans to do what they do best. Great. Over here. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, during the last 30, 40 years, we have also seen a decoupling of productivity growth from wage growth. And it's not just benefits that are taken out, but, 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 but wage growth also hasn't kept up with the productivity growth that we have seen either. Mark? I, I know you teach in a business school where there are a number of people who either now or in the past have been big advocates for unions. Mm -hmm. which is not generally something that's advocated in a business school. Mm -hmm. So in your good jobs approach, what is the role of unions or collective bargaining in ensuring and protecting good jobs? Yeah. So again, coming back to this decoupling of wage growth from productivity growth, there's it's not a coincidence that unionization has declined during that same period, right? So, 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 so workers not having that much power has contributed to, to, to this. Um, what is my opinion on unions? So I don't have one opinion. Again, I will come to the system, which is it depends on what that union's relationship is with the company and what that union does. So one example, Mark, was you know, if you go back a couple decades and you look at the auto industry, right? it was still heavily unionized. People had good pay, good benefits, but the job was not mind-numbing and degrading. Right? You were just doing the same thing over and over again. So it's not that union was prevented a good job, but it's not whether we have a union or not, but it's how you use that relationship for prosperity, for workers and for companies, and value for their customers. Yeah. Yes. I'd like if you would just explain a little more. When you, in one of the examples you talked about, it was some company that said everyone is reliable. Mm -hmm. Help me to understand deeper how what that means. The approach. Yeah. So this is Mercadona, the Spanish supermarket chain, and they say everyone is reliable, which means that when there is a problem in the company, we don't blame the person. We blame the system. We say, what is in our system that's preventing us from creating great outcomes? Oftentimes in many businesses, uh, there's a problem and a person is blamed, right? Oh, this is their fault. Here, everyone is reliable. Everybody comes to work, 
wanting to do a good job, we can count on them. What is preventing them from being, doing a good job? And let's fix our system and not fix the people versus fixing the people. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting because I know like I've had conversations with a number of economists recently, you know, and economists will like to say like, you know, invest in education, invest in people's skills so that they can be more productive. And I say, well, but product isn't productivity really like a function of how the job is designed? And then they go, oh, well, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, I think it's really, um, you know, I think really thinking about that job design as a driver of productivity is, is really important. Yeah. Let's think as much about upskilling jobs as we do about upskilling workers. Okay, so you have a question from our audience, and then we'll go back around there. <laughs> so a couple of questions uh, from our online audience. <clears throat> Number one, um, raising, raising wages in, in industries substantially controlled by publicly defined reimbursements like childcare or long-term care can be very challenging. What are your thoughts about good jobs in those settings? And then one more question. Um, we recently started profit sharing at our company. Um, it, what are your thoughts on businesses doing this and how it can contribute to good jobs? So the first one is about raising pay is difficult in childcare and those types of settings. In, in jobs that you know, are reimbursed by the government. Yeah. yeah, I mean, let's think about this. Our priorities and our values as a society. Those of you who have children who go to daycare, and I don't know about your children. My children were very difficult, right? <laughs> One of them is actually sitting in the audience. So, so the, day, the, the daycare teachers who take care of these kids, how difficult their job is and how important their job is and how important that job is to the you know, to, 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 to outcomes of our children. And the daycare teachers, the same daycare teachers who are so important for our children, don't make enough to make ends meet. And we're wondering, as a society, like, oh, but it's unaffordable. Like, I would love for us to go back to our values and principles and say, is this reasonable? And how do we fix this? We need to figure out a way to fix this. So um, the second question. Yes, yeah. yes, I mean so many people in agricultural industry, caregiving, retail, fulfillment centers, during the pandemic, we call these workers essential workers. We call them essential workers because they are so essential to the functioning of our economy. And you wouldn't tell that by looking at their wages or how they're treated. The second one was about profit sharing. Profit sharing, yes. So, so there's um, one of the four companies that, that I studied originally, uh, Quick Trip, which is employee, partly employee-owned, as, as, as you were talking about, and they do profit sharing with, with their employees. And that's fantastic, right? That's fantastic. But if the base level of pay is not high enough, you're going to lose people. And when I say high enough, it's high enough to be able to live and take care of your family and have agency in your life. Okay, yep, in the back. Hi. Big fan of your work. I've been Thank following you. you for a long time. Thank you. I appreciate you being here. Um, so my question is, you'd mentioned um, the importance of policies that incentivize businesses to adopt higher road approaches, the good job strategies. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts about what that would look like? in practice? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about it. Um, one thing that comes to mind immediately is tax incentives. Right? When a company uh, invests in technology, we provide all sorts of invest tax incentives for investing in technology. We don't do that with investing in workers. So that might be one you know, approach that you can nudge companies toward people investment. So um, I, despite the uh, pandemic and uh, the uh, impact it had on uh, the labor market, uh, it seems to me we're still hearing, you know, what I consider a lot of whining by uh, businesses about uh, labor shortage. And it would seem to me, especially in this environment, that, uh, you know, a firm that 
would adopt a good job strategy would have their picking. I mean, it could be very, a competitive advantage. So I was wondering in your business school environment if mm -hmm. uh, people are, aren't seeing things that way as a, as a competitive edge to, to, to be the best employer around. Yes. As opposed to making just a moral case. Yes, I will say um, for sure it is a competitive case, co competitive advantage for them. But I will say it with a nuance, with some practical, real world type of um, uh, answer, which is, you know, look at retail workers, restaurant workers, those who have had to work during the pandemic, those who risk their health, their lives to be able to give us the goods that we buy and, and, and take care of ourselves. They worked under those circumstances. They went through this whole masking thing. Do you, are you masking? Are you not masking? Customers yelled at them because they weren't enforcing masking. Customers yelled at them because they were enforcing masking. They went through a really tough period everywhere in retailer, retail. No matter what company you're thinking about. And then inflation hit. Right now, those same workers are blamed for higher prices. So I don't want to say a rosy picture of, oh, you know, things that, you know, these good jobs companies like Costco, Quick Trip, they're so wonderful. They've all went through, we've all went through a very difficult period, and they too went through a very difficult period. Now, it is, is it easier for them? Most probably. Okay, we'll take one more question here, and then I'll ask you one to wrap up. I, I just wanted to ask, are you seeing the emergence of, like, communities of practice among employers or, like, groups of employers that are actually sort of committed to this in a sincere way that are leaning on one another to be able to figure out some of the, the challenges to making better jobs? One of the things that Sarah has been working on is Worker Financial Wellness Initiative. Um, and PayPal and Just Capital have been the leaders in, in, in that initiative, and our Good Jobs Institute with Sarah's leadership has been part of that. And this has been a bunch of businesses working together to create awareness about pay uh, and, and looking at their workers to see what percentage of our workers are making a living wage and how do we learn from each other in terms of how to you know, both create awareness and solve the problem. So that's probably... Uh, one of our good examples of companies working together as a group to solve big problems. Great. So one of the things I loved in your book is the observations you share of like you and Sarah and like the team you work with going around and shopping and observing things. And some of them are quite funny. So I recommend the book. It's actually good for a laugh in some places. Um, yeah, I've Yan never had this response from that. <laughs> well, Yankee Skier in New England, I found hilarious. But um, anyway, yes. <laughs> um, uh, but we do have a terrific audience here online. They care about good jobs, and they're also consumers, right? So what would you advise them to sort of um, pay attention to, to look for, to think about as they're shopping if they want to be supporting good jobs? Yeah, I'm, I guess there's that easy answer, which is shop with your, you know, with your values, right? You know, where you shop, um, reflect your values. So shop from companies that provide good jobs. That that, but that that's a lot of work for consumers because they need to figure out which companies are providing good jobs. I think the real thing that we can all do, and and I don't want to advise you. I mean, you probably have advice for me, but I'll I'll, I'll share with you what I try to remind myself and the advice that I give myself about, about this, which is if I called because there's a problem with my ticket and the rep on the phone can't help me, right? Or, or if I'm at the supermarket and the line is too long, or the, it, when I'm waiting, the, the person won't substitute an item. It's just a simple thing I ask as a customer. Can I substitute this with that? And they won't do it. And to think, I remind myself, it's not their fault. It's the system that's designed for them to fail in front of me. So have more empathy. And treat other people with kindness. Uh, because it makes a difference for frontline workers. I remember asking Todd, um, who works at Costco, like, what would you want your customers to, to do? And he said, look at us in the eye. And once in a while, be thankful. 
So those are the things that I try to remind myself when I'm interacting with frontline workers. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you all for being here. I want to also thank my colleagues. I couldn't, they do an amazing job. Matt Helmer, who is running around back there but does so much more than run around with a microphone, let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> Merritt Steuben, Sunin Young, Colleen Cunningham, many thanks to our Aspen Institute AV colleagues who keep our technology working. Um, really thank you all for joining and sharing your questions and being here today. And uh, we do love your feedback, so you can send us an email. Again, it's eop.program at aspeninstitute.org or fill out the survey if you're online. Um, next up from us, we're going to have a, a special two-day employee ownership ideas forum, June 14th and 15th. So if you're interested in employee ownership, uh, please uh, keep an eye out for information on that, and hopefully you can join us. Um, and uh, thanks again for joining us today, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Oh, yeah. Matt, are you doing a raffle? Uh, just a quick announcement. Um, so we, we're giving away three books. So uh, the winners were Carrie Ann Malloy, uh, Kathleen Vickland, and uh, Marina Matatora. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so if I called your name, you could meet us up front and we'll give you your book. All right. <laughs> book sales are available too, and I think Zainab might have some time to sign as well. You'll, you'll sign, right?